Good morning, everyone. Continuing our journey in the letter that Paul writes to the Ephesians, we're going to look at the subject of unity this morning. And uh, there's, a, there's a really interesting, initially there was a book and now there's, there's a movie on, on this uh, with a fascinating story. It's called Boys in the Boat. And uh, it tells a thrilling story of the 1936 Olympics. And the surprise for everybody was that the United States teams uh, won, the crew won, uh, and came out of nowhere. Initially, as the Americans were selecting their team to represent them at the Olympics, uh, usually the places where you would find the, the best crews in boat racing were from the aristocratic backgrounds of places that are prestigious and known, like Yale, Princeton, and Harvard. And yet, this University of Washington team, made out of unexpected candidates, ended up being such a historic uh, group of people that in the sporting world became something that was studied and looked at. And the one thing that was really amazing about them was a sense of unity in this particular team. And I guess we, we all love that sense of seeing unity played out in, in different circumstances. And probably very topical for us because we live in a society right now that, I don't know, this is just my um, unprofessional observation as a human being and a citizen, but it feels very fragmented. It feels like we live in a very fragmented society. I guess probably the Prime Minister, with his uh, particularly strong statement uh, throughout this week, uh, pointed out towards that. It feels like there is so much division in our communities and in our country. And the church isn't exempt. The church is part of our wider community and part of our culture. And we are not exempt from the challenges that come with disunity. Except in church, we've gotten very, be- very good and we've gotten better across the years at hiding it and sweeping it under the carpet and putting on a really respectable mask and pretending that we're all the same, we all like each other, and we never fall out with each other. Well, of course, if you've been around church for long enough, you know it's not true. All it takes is to bring up some thorny subjects. Women in ministry gifts of the spirit, end times, the role of Israel and understanding how Israel should be regarded and the life of the church. You throw some of those topics out in the open and you suddenly realize we're probably not as united as you thought we were. Of course, it is important to realize that actually the church in Ephesus wasn't any different than us. The church was planted in a city that was pagan, So first of all, you've got a brand new faith, so to speak, amongst people that were pagan and worshipping deities and gods that were pagan. And those people come to Christ. So you have a church made out of people who were coming from a Jewish background, people who were Gentiles, and people who probably worshipped a whole variety of gods. And also, just like in our church, you had people that were wealthy and people that were poor. You had people that were young and people that were old. You had people that were coming from different ethnic backgrounds. So it was very clear 
that there was a real sense of this could have been a real place where division could take place. And that's why Paul is addressing this issue. One of the things that I love about Paul, and there are many things I love about the Apostle Paul, is the fact that he is a straightforward guy who sees the potential challenges in the church and talks about them, addresses them. And this is where we find ourselves. Will you open with me in Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to read the first few verses. Ephesians 4, first few verses. This is what Paul is writing. Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father who is over all and in all and having, living through all. The thing that Paul is stressing is there's a link between what he said earlier on, because the very first word that he brings to us is the word therefore. And what we've looked so far is so much of the gospel, the very basics of the Christian faith. The truth that Jesus came to die for our sins. The, the, the truth that Jesus came to make us a people out of being enemies of God and to bring us into an inheritance. And it is because of that, because of who we are in Christ, because of our new identity. That's what Paul is saying. Therefore, there is an implication that because of our Christian identity, we have to behave in a certain way. We have to think and act in a certain way. It's not just good enough to wear the label, so to speak, talk the talk, without walking the walk. And here is where the rubber hits the road, because he's probably challenging and speaking into something that's very human and very much part of every society and every context. The challenges of broken relationships and disunity coming into it. And Paul is uh, addressing the issue, really bringing a couple of things into play. The first thing that he does, he gives us an incentive for unity. Paul is saying this in verse 1. Therefore I, as a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. For you have been called by God. And then he continues in verse 4, for there is one body, one spirit, called to one glorious hope for the future, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. So he's bringing two things as an incentive for the unity in the church in Ephesus. One is probably uh, evangelistic, if you want, missional. And he's basically saying, I, Paul, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you. This is not just a simple suggestion. This is Paul using very strong words, pouring out his passion, saying this is a matter of life and death. Unity isn't in the church isn't just something that you take or leave. 
That's why Paul is saying, I'm begging you. I'm begging you. I'm pleading with you. This is an important issue. And he says, I want you to live a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. And in other words, Paul is appealing to their identity and he's saying to them, you, whether you, you realize it or not, whether you want it or not, you are an advert, a walking, talking advert for God who called you. The God who you claim to wear a label saying, I am a Christian, I'm following Christ, and now people are watching you. And that's why Paul is appealing to them, and he's saying, for the sake of your evangelistic testimony, for the sake of what people who don't know this Jesus yet, people who are watching you, intentionally or unintentionally, for the sake of that, live in unity with one another. You and I, as much as the believers in Ephesus, are people who are ambassadors. And the reputation of God, this is a strong thing that I'm saying to you right now, the reputation of God is at play through my speech, my actions, and my attitudes. People look at me, wearing the label, I'm a Christ follower, and they will judge Christ by my actions, by my thoughts, by my attitudes. And that's why Paul is saying, live a life worthy of your calling, because you have been called by God. The outsiders would look at your life and my life, and they will evaluate Christ. What will they see? And that's why Paul is saying, in his encouragement for them to live in unity, make sure that you live in such a way that Christ is seen in your life. The other argument is not missiological, if you want, or evangelistic, but it's more theological. And he's pointing to them, all the different ones. And, and, and what he's saying, he's saying you've been, uh, you're part of one body and one spirit, clothed to one glorious hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father. So he's actually saying, people, in Christ you are all one. Without Christ, you may have reasons to feel superior You may have reasons to look down at others. You may have reasons to actually think, I'm not like them. In Christ, you are all one. And he's pointing to the process of salvation, to the fact that he is the Lord, he is the Savior, he gives us grace. Everything unites us. We are one in Christ. That's the reality, the spiritual, theological reality of what it means to belong to Jesus. The moment you begin to follow Jesus, you're making yourself one to the rest of the other people who do the same as you do when they decide to follow Jesus. At the foot of the cross, there is no more class. There is no differentiation. We are all equal. Sinners saved by the grace of Jesus, not deserving, and being welcomed into his family. All of us, as Paul is saying, one. And that's why Paul would say to the Ephesians, do not have any divisions in your church. Why? Because first of all, it would be a bad advert for the people outside who are looking in and they're saying, seeing that, what will they think about Jesus? And also, you shouldn't have any divisions because actually in Christ you are made one. There's something radical that happened to you in terms of your identity when you welcomed him.
So therefore, when we are not in unity, and by the way, not having unity in the church doesn't just mean that we have big wars going in. You can have a church that doesn't have any visible fallouts in it, but is not united. There's a big difference between looking civil and keeping sweeping things under the carpet and looking like we're all getting on with one another, never saying anything bad publicly about each other, but probably thinking it or probably speaking behind each other's backs. That's not unity. Unity is something much deeper. And Paul is building a picture and he's trying to say, I'm going to teach you. I'm going to give you some pointers in trying to encourage you to uh, discover these ingredients for unity. Because if we're not in unity, it's a terrible witness to those around us. And actually, if you're not in unity, we're not a mature church. Because a mature church would live in unity because that's the nature of who we are in Christ. One. So Paul begins to break down those elements or ingredients of humility. And this is what he says. Always be, and, and I love this. I'm a pragmatist. And I love this because it's easy to check myself against this. Otherwise, it's, it's like love. Love one another. What does that mean? You know, we can all smile at one another. We love one another. It's like the uh, uh, Apostle James is saying when, when somebody pretends, you know, a, a brother or a sister is in need. And you say to them, go, God bless you. I will pray for you. That's not loving one another. And that's what I love about the Apostle Paul. He gives us some very practical advice that he gives to the church in Ephesus, and we can borrow from that in terms of how does this look. And this is where he's, what he says. Always be humble. Always. Hello? Always. Can I not get some time off from that? Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. So Paul is saying this is, these are the ingredients of a united church. This is what you fight with against disunity in the church. Let's pick them up. We couple some of them together. First of all, when Paul is talking, he's talking about humility. Be humble. Always be humble and gentle. What does humility look like in the church? It means that I don't always to get my way. I, it doesn't always have to be like that. We all have a preference for things. You can't always have the songs sung by the worship team that you like. You're laughing. But the amount of times we as pastors get complaints about why are we not singing that song? And so why are we singing that song? And why are we not singing more songs like that or more songs like that? And I tell you, it comes from all the whole spectrum. Humility. It's not all about me. The world in which we live in is feeding us to think about me. What I like, what I want. We are bred by our culture to be consumers. And we want a choice. Paul is saying, be humble. Humility means I don't always have to get my way. I don't always have to be right. 
Humility always asks the question, did I get this right? Am I jumping to assumptions? Humility means that even when we have to part ways, we do it graciously. Paul and Barnabas had a major disagreement of philosophy of ministry. In an amazing way, neither of them was wrong, really. It wasn't one of those doctrinal issues where there's a right and wrong. Neither of them was wrong. It was just a a difference in philosophy of ministry or a disagreement about the person and about their potential and about their leadership. And they parted ways, but they parted ways graciously, and each of them continued in ministry. And actually, you see them later on kind of reunited and reconciled. There is such a thing as parting ways. I never have a problem with anybody wanting to leave our church if they go to another healthy church. And if they say, look, that place seems to me to be a place where I feel I can grow closer to Christ. I I second that. I, I, I encourage them to do that. Because my greatest aim is not to grow the numbers of this church, but to make sure that the kingdom of God grows and people do grow. And I realize people grow in different types of environments. This church has many flaws. It has many qualities, but it has many flaws. And there are other churches locally who don't have the same flaws. They have the qualities where we have the flaws, and possibly the flaws where we have the qualities. But it is about that. Humility has a way in which we even part ways graciously. And humility is about being willing to be reconciled. How easy do we find to say sorry, and we've fallen out with somebody, and we got it wrong, and instead of blanking them <laughs> and just giving them the silent treatment uh, or avoiding them, we actually have the humility to be reconciled, to admit that we're wrong. That's what brings unity. Second one is gentle and peaceful. I've put them together. You know, Paul is encouraging us to be gentle and peaceful. Always be humble and gentle. Binding yourselves together with peace. What a beautiful picture. So pictorial. Kind of bound together with peace. It's one of those things where if you want to be gentle and peaceful, you should always ask the question, is this a hill I'm willing to die on? It never ceases to amaze me how nowadays we make secondary and tertiary issues to do with the faith the main thing. And here's the problem. What somebody might class as a secondary issue, other people might say, no, it's a primary issue. And this is the challenge. And for me, the primary issues that we need to have unity is the essential issues to do with the orthodoxy of the Christian faith. First and foremost, the authority of Scripture. We believe that God's word is the ultimate authority. And out of there kind of comes all our theology. Then we think about God as the creator of the world. We think about Christ coming to save sinners who didn't deserve to be saved. We think of Christ's virgin birth. We think of the resurrection. We think of the sending of the Holy Spirit. You kind of get the idea. Christ will come back. When he will come back, I would say that's a secondary issue. And I'm probably going to get some emails this week. For me, that's a secondary issue. We can have, according to the scriptures, both of us would open the Bible and find enough reasons to support our idea. Well, to me, that becomes a secondary issue. 
because we're honoring, it is God's word, and we can both come, and it's very difficult to be definitive about it. And it's distinguishing between the two. What's the hill that you're willing to die on? Because that's a really important thing in terms of living gently and peacefully. Timing and tone. That's about being peaceful and gentle. Timing and tone. Most of the time you can say the right thing with the wrong tone. Or at the wrong time. Let me be really honest with you. Negative feedback straight after the service finishes. It's an absolute killer for us as pastors and preachers. It's a killer. We are always very emotional. (laughs) You might be surprised. We're always very emotional. So that's always a terrible time to do that. So thinking about when we say things and how we say things. You all know from your own life, if, if you're ticked off about something and you're really angry, that's probably not the best time to go and say anything. Even if you're right, it's best to cool down, to pray, to ponder your words, to choose the right moment. And think of the other person. There sometimes are so many things happening in other people's lives that we don't know. And this is the other thing that's really important. The weightier the matters, the closer you need to be to the person and know the person because you can go in there with something that could be right, but actually you have no idea because you have no relationship to the person, with the person, you have no idea what they're going through, and you can really go in with your boots and make an absolute mess of the whole thing. Gentle and peaceful. Gentle and peaceful helps to the unity. There always needs to be that check of anger. Anger is very toxic. And it can look very different. I know people like me. You can read me when I'm angry. Uh, I'm a traffic light on my face. You know, you can read me when I'm angry. Sometimes when I'm embarrassed as well, you know. uh, You can probably embarrass me about something. I'm not angry, but I get... My face, my my mom knows when I'm angry. She says, you're angry now. You know, you, you, you got that sort of quiet uh, thing and you're looking respectable, but you're angry. You're like inside, you're like cooking up. You're like a pressure cooker. You know, so there's different ways of looking at that, but we've got to check that anger because it's so dangerous, so toxic. We can say things that are so hurtful and you can't take them back. You think of the things that were spoken to you, for some of you, many, many years ago. Still there. Because anger can be very hurtful. And that's why Paul, when he writes, is saying, be gentle, be peaceful. And I think increasingly we need to learn to build bridges, not burn them. Our culture is hell-bent on burning bridges at the moment. People are cutting you off. You've got a different view on Trump, or you've got a different view of what is happening in Gaza and Israel. People are cutting you off. I'm, cu- I'm not speaking to you anymore. And everything is just gone. Sometimes years of a relationship gone because you've got a different take on something. I think we've got to be very careful not to be quick to burn bridges. <laughs> Probably very quick to learn to build them. Same vein, but he, he, he kind of brings a, another angle, patience, patient allowance. He says this, be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Whew. 
Anybody seeing this every week, several times in our lives, not just in the church? This is a real challenge. And Paul is saying in the church, you've got to make allowance by being patient. Here's the truth. We're all on a journey in here, in this room. And we're at different stages of that journey. And the Christian faith and the journey of the Christian faith isn't always linear and progressive. Hello? Sometimes you're thinking it has to be always going that way. No, it doesn't. Sometimes it goes back. Sometimes it just stands still. True? It happens. And it's so easy to be so preoccupied with somebody else's journey and, and, and really kind of make a judgment in thinking where they should be at. But we can't. And being patient enables us to have a different view. What is going on in our lives? When you begin to understand the context of our lives better, you kind of take a step back and you think, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize this is what's going on, this is what you're dealing with. Because it requires patience. Because it's challenging. We need to talk more about unity in the church, about neurodiverse people. Hello? No. Most of you are not engaging with that? You should be. We're all differently wired up in terms of our neurodiversity. We had a situation where uh, somebody who I think is neurodiverse, and actually, you know, for the younger generation, it's easier, it's a diagnosis. You know, it is something that's real and known. For those of us of another generation, we've never even heard about that. Uh, but we're recognizing it sometimes in ourselves, sometimes in our friends. And sometimes what can look like being mean or being straight-talking, or be, it's just somebody that's neurodiverse, actually. I was judged for many, many years because of my introversion. Our whole family as well as my friends in school, thought I was an arrogant person. Just because I was incredibly shy, very often in my own corner, very often not engaging, very often not being up for a laugh. It was just my introversion. I was the opposite of being proud. I was extremely insecure and deeply hurt by what I was feeling. But I was introverted, and I didn't know. Nobody told me. I just thought I was weird. It's as simple as that. And that's what I'm saying Sometimes it's just so easy because we don't understand how we are as a personality, what our life has been like, what are the traumas that we've been through. It's just so easy to not be patient with one another. And I think we need more understanding on neurodiversity, traumas that shape reactions in people. I've had a situation in our church where I've been probably um, gently direct with somebody and the person just shrunk. And I thought, oh, that's weird. Because I'm not an antagonistic, aggressive person at all. But what happened is, they were in a previous environment before where that kind of thing just slightly reminded them of somebody who was abusive, who was coercive. Not like me. Nothing that I did was wrong in that situation. But it just triggered a remembrance of how another pastor spoke to them or another leader treated them. 
And thankfully, I was able to ask more questions because I wanted to correct what I was doing wrong. And the people were able to... And I had to say, we both need to move on this one. I need to be probably a little bit more aware, but also you need to know I am not like that. So not to allow that past experience to totally shape and steal the life from you. Being patient with one another. Now, massive caveat here. And you all know where I'm going with this. Patience doesn't mean we tolerate toxic attitudes. It's not true. We don't do that. For everything else that I've mentioned here, the stuff that's going on in our life, where we are on our journey with Jesus, things that we've been hurt with, that does not become an excuse for being an abusive person, a rude person, an aggressive person, and just hiding behind that in order to treat other people better. And you can't just play that card, oh, be patient with me. I'm just going to be rude and I'm going to hurt people's feelings incessantly. Oh, just be patient with me because that's what the Bible says. No, no, we're not saying that. Hear me out, we're not saying that. We've got to work at this. And that patience and self-control, all the fruit of the Spirit, needs to be worked in our lives. But in a context of patience, equally we're not tolerating and we're not patient with doctrinal heresy. That's, one of, that, that's not the kind of thing that Paul is talking about here. And Paul practices it. Paul, in, in, in some of the letters, he's absolutely very... Read Galatians. Galatians is a masterpiece. If you want to see the braveness, the theological braveness and courage of Paul, you look at what he writes about those heretics who are coming into church, bringing false theology. He calls them all sorts of different names. And he's ruthless with them. He says, no, zero tolerance of doctrinal heresy. So don't turn around and say, be patient with me if you're bringing doctrinal heresy. Because that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about patience with one another as we keep growing in Christ-likeness. And we are on that journey. And then another one is unity in the spirit. Unity in the spirit. And, and the, the, the phrase that Paul is using, he's saying this, make every effort... To keep yourselves united in the spirit. So this is something that actually we need to be proactive about it. Make every effort. Think about going to the gym. Think about practicing in order to learn a skill. You have to keep on working at it. Make every effort. So you don't just come in a community, fold your arms and say, Holy Spirit, um, just unite us no paul is saying you make you make every effort and maybe it's part of some of those ingredients (laughs) you make every effort to keep yourself in unity in the spirit there's something we have to do and it decide it needs to have a decisive and costly action make every effort effort you get that it's not pleasant you've got to work at it You've got to keep on going. Is that perseverance. And I think when he's saying unity in the spirit, I think once again Paul is appealing to doctrine and he's basically saying when you look around at the people that frustrate you in the church, just think about this. These are the people that Christ died for. These are now your brothers and your sisters. You know what he says about not being able to choose your family? Same with the spiritual family. So when you get angry with them, just think about, these are people in whom the Spirit of God lives. 
kind of changes your optics, has to change your heart. It's a real help to understand that we've got to keep making the effort to have that unity in the spirit. We treat one another as people for whom Christ died. That's precious. We treat one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's precious. And we have that attitude in which we all look at one another thinking as somebody wrote, why do in church oftentimes only see our superficial differences? Why can't we see each other as we are ultimately alike, redeemed by the blood, united with Christ, loved by God, adopted in the same family? Because that's who we are. So here are some ten questions, ten commandments, ten questions. Ten helpful questions. Well, I wrote them, so I'm assuming they're helpful. Ten helpful questions to fostering unity within CFM. And the first and probably fundamental question, in order to be part of the body of Christ, with Christ as his head, he needs to be your head as well. So you need to become a Christian. You cannot live in Christian unity with the body of Christ if you yourself have not experienced a moment in your life where you would say, I recognize my sinfulness, I recognize that Christ came to do something about that sinfulness. And I accepted his sacrifice on the cross as the means of solving that problem. And I surrender my life to him. Him who is now my savior and my Lord and the head of the church. So that's the important question we all have to ask ourselves. Is Christ my head? You might say to me, oh, how, do, how do I know the answer to that question? Well, you should, because there should be a moment in your life when you stood up or put your hand up or bowed the knee and you said, on this day, I recognize that I'm a sinner and I'm surrendering my life to Jesus. I, I have a day. I remember where I was. I could tell you when it was. And I remember very vividly doing that. Can you? Because it's really important to recall to your mind that moment. And my suggestion, gently, if you haven't had that experience, you may not be a Christian. And therefore, my invitation to you this morning is, come and be part of the family. Surrender your life to Christ. Make him your Lord and Savior, because he's the head of the church that we submit to. Is the church the body I belong to? Do you recognize that that's, that's what's going on theologically? When we become followers of Jesus, we automatically join the body of Christ. Universal and local. Am I part of the body of Christ? And now it gets heavier. Do I like and love this church? I really think it's a very important part of your spiritual growth. You really need to be in a church that you love and like. With its imperfections. Probably be like marriage, from what people tell me. You know, you might, you, might, you might say, you know, the reality is a little few things, quirks. I'm thinking, okay. But I'm not angry about it. I, I, it doesn't upset me. There isn't a sense in which. I keep saying to people, if you're walking away from the church frustrated most weeks, you probably should look at going somewhere else. And the beauty is, probably what you're frustrated with, there's another church that does that really well. So why come here 
and be frustrated and be half-hearted about it instead of kind of being fully in. The beauty of being in a united church is that, that people that come love it with all its imperfections and they're fully in and they say, that's me. I love this place. I love the people in this place. I love our culture. And this is where is my spiritual home. And this is when I want to grow in Christ-likeness. And I've had conversations with people who are kind of, uh, about some stuff. And they said, if only we would change. And I keep saying that we won't change. Not with that stuff, because this is not who we are. So if you want a church where we turn the lights off and we have smoke machines, we're probably not going to go there. But I can tell you where you can go and find it. It's not wrong. It's just not who we are. Just using a silly example. But you get the idea. Do I like and love this church? Do I belong by being committed? There's a a sense in me sometimes you can kind of be around but not really be in. You know, does it really matter if I'm there or I'm not there? It does. It makes a big difference. And I let the Holy Spirit probably speak to you more about that. Do I consume or contribute? I think the beautiful thing is in every church is to have people who are servant-hearted and they find ways in which they can serve in the community and bring whatever gifts God has given them to bless that. Am I harmonious? How many of you are musical? There's more than that. I'm pretty sure there's more than that. So I spent my teenage years being in, singing in the choir. I was singing the bass line. And it was one of the most sensational things. And there is, the, 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 there's, the, the, there's, there's a guy at the moment, a young guy, young British guy, phenomenal musician. And one of the things that he does, he goes to and fills these big halls and big stadiums, and he gets people to sing. Jacob Collier is his name. Uh, probably, I think both of his songs are okay. They're usually covers, so they should be clean, but never mind. But the beauty is he just encourages people to sing in harmony. And oh my word, when the harmony kicks in, it's like, wow, it's beautiful. So I think this is what we need to think about, is that sense of, am I being harmonious? Harmonious doesn't mean that I sing all, you know, everybody sings tenor, you know, or all the ladies sings alto or sopranos. It means that we all sing with our own voice, but we allow that in a beautiful way. And God does that. You create the harmony. So we remain unique to ourselves, but we fit in within that choir. And probably that's where the, the musical notes and the director play an important role. Am I friendly? You know, it's one of the biggest things. Uh, you know, just having that friendly face, even if you're nervous like me and you're an introvert and you're kind of petrified of speaking to people you don't know very well, you know, just having a friendly phrase, putting a smile. And I tell you what, most of us kind of are British or living in a British culture, we can do this. But it makes a big difference. Just having that friendly attitude. Am I encouraging? Am I encouraging? Just generally. Having an attitude in which we tend to see the best in people and what is there. Because encouragement is so precious. We live in a society starved of encouragement. Put on the news, it's depressing. Look at the newsstand, it's all bad news, bad, 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 it's all bad. There should be a new channel launching with just positive news, good news channel. I'm telling you. And people need that, we need that. 
Am I supportive? Kind of the same kind of vein, uh, you know, having that sense in which, you know, we, we, we do small talk after church uh, as we're in the center next door. But how important is it to maybe go a little bit deeper? You say, how was your week? How was your family? How was your work? And then just to say, let me pray for you. Can I pray for you? Tell you what, sometimes that's better than the sermon, right? You go away, you engage with a brother and a sister, you brought some of your heart that may be heavy or challenging. Or it could be a joyous thing. What about praying to celebrate something? Talking about good news. It's not all, not all doom and gloom. There's some great stuff happening throughout the week in our lives. Somebody's saying, you know, how was your week? Well, let me tell you about this. And you're like, wow, let's give thanks to God for this. This is so encouraging. So we're praying as part of fostering unity. So I think we've got enough food for thought in that. The beauty is that actually we can be here this morning and we are the body of Christ. And one of the amazing things as part of our service this morning is that we will have the opportunity once again to remind ourselves of the one that loved us beyond belief. It's only because of Jesus that we can be united. And it's only through Jesus that we can be united. And it brings us back to that place. The greatest display of unity, if you want. The cross of Christ. Where heaven meets earth. And where sinful people are reconciled to a holy God. All through the sacrificial love of Christ displayed on the cross. Let's allow our hearts to be filled again this morning with the wonder of his love, the beauty of his grace. So that as we are filled up, what spills out in our interactions, both positive and challenging, is that sense that the love of Christ who met us and filled us made spill into the lives of all those around us every day. That's the dream. That's the call. As we see the cross as God's greatest sign of reconciliation. Let me pray for us. Ellie and the band are going to come up. And they're going to lead us in a song. Jesus. We know that every human attempt to bring unity ends up tragically because it's impossible. The only way that unity can be amongst us, it is by you, because of you, for you. It is because of your unbelievable love that brought us together. It is through that supernatural power to love people who are different than me. And it is because we want to display something to this world that showcases the power of your reconciliation. That people can be brought together by the blood of Jesus and his sacrificial death on the cross. Lord Jesus, may that 
inspire and encourage us this morning as we come to your table.